Tech Writer Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 731 for the 19th of February, 2021. This week, we have had access to home computers for more than 40 years and online financial services for at least 25 years, but we are still using old-style passwords to protect our information. In short circuits, by adopting Blink, the rendering engine that powers Google Chrome, Microsoft is developing a workable Edge browser that offers some useful new features. Wacom finally has a digitizing pen that works with Chromebook computers, but beware the confusing name the company gave it. In spare parts, only on the website, if you want to be a better photographer, take more pictures. That's easy advice to give, but more difficult to follow. It does work, though. Does your Windows computer sometimes switch from a 5 gigahertz network to a slower 2.4 gigahertz connection? If so, there is an easy solution. And 20 years ago, we were all anxiously awaiting Windows XP, which would prove to be the most significant advance for Windows since Windows 95. Strong passwords are essential to the safety of your data. There are lots of techniques for creating good ones. Let's take a look at some of the ways to create and secure good passwords. First, use a password manager such as LastPass or OnePass, RoboForm or Dashlane. Some people recommend against password managers, but I think they use faulty logic when doing so. What if someone breaks into the password manager's server, they ask? Well, probably nothing happens. A good password manager will, first of all, create a secure website and will create virtually unbreakable security. These services encrypt your password when they're on their servers, during the time they're moving between the server and your computer, and when they're stored on your computer. To exploit your passwords, a crook would need to get past the password manager's security, know your username, and break the strong encryption that's linked to your master password. Given the advantages password managers offer, fearing a threat with a minuscule but still non-zero possibility isn't a good use of your time. So first step, choose a password manager if you can. Websites, especially those that involve finance in any form, often include a third item in addition to username and password. One bank requests my username, then the site shows me an image. If that's not the image I expected, it's an indication that I mistyped the username. The next step is entering the password, and if it's right, the site then asks me a security question. Although I'm comfortable with the security offered by this arrangement, it could be improved by substituting two-factor authentication for both the picture and the security question. Authy is a free service that provides a six-digit security key for sites that you set up. The key changes every 30 seconds, so the user must have the correct username, password, and security key to log on to a site. 
Even if someone manages to capture the username and password, the security key is likely to change before they can use it. And guessing the key is unlikely because six numerals gives you 10 to the sixth possibilities. That's one million possibilities. Most password managers have functions that generate secure passwords, but you might also want to consider using a separate service, such as Passwords Generator, which is a free online service. You'll find a link to it on the TechBiter Worldwide website. The user specifies the length of the password, whether it will contain uppercase letters, lowercase letters, numbers, and symbols. Password Generator allows the user to specify which symbols will be used, the default is the exclamation point, quotation marks, hash sign, dollar sign, percent sign, ampersand, single quote, open and close parentheses, asterisk, plus sign, comma, dash, period, forward slash, colon, semicolon, less than, equal, and greater than symbols, the question mark, the at sign, left and right square braces, the caret, an underscore, backtick, left and right curly braces, the vertical bar, and a tilde. You can also specify whether the password can start with a symbol. Some sites don't like that. Strong passwords should be long, 16 characters or more, contain uppercase and lowercase letters, numbers, and symbols. It's wise to eliminate look-alike characters, such as the number 1 and the lowercase l, or the number 0 and the uppercase o. At least, it's a good idea to do that if you're going to be typing the password in yourself. But why not just type your own random characters? Well, as it turns out, when humans try to type random characters, they really don't do a very good job. The password generator will do a much better job. If you use a password manager, a password such as uppercase X, hash sign, YB underscore, left curly brace, uppercase J, question mark six, forward slash W tilde, uppercase Y, P, uppercase A, D, it wouldn't be a problem because the password manager will supply it when you need it. But if you have to remember a password so you can type it, you will very quickly find that such a password isn't even slightly memorable. When I worked in an office where password changes were required every 45 days and password managers were prohibited, I created a system that allowed me to have my password hint written and leave it open in plain sight. First, I set a calendar reminder to change the passwords every 42 days, not every 45 days. That's six weeks, so the reminder would always fall on a Wednesday. That eliminated having it fall on a Monday holiday or a Friday. I took a lot of Fridays off in those days. Also, if I had set the reminders to every 45 days, some would have occurred on Saturdays and Sundays. Then I would have been locked out of some of the systems on the next Monday. The password requirements for the systems varied. Most of the systems required at least eight characters, but one was limited to a total of eight characters. That meant my password would need to be exactly eight characters. Most systems required uppercase and lowercase letters. Some required numbers. The one that didn't require numbers would accept them. Some systems required symbols, but one of them allowed only three symbols, the exclamation point, question mark, and hash sign. So I needed an eight-character password with a mix of uppercase and lowercase letters, at least one number, and one of three possible symbols. And it needed to be memorable because I couldn't use a password manager. 
good password procedures limit passwords to use on a single system, but reusing the password for multiple internal systems seemed safe enough. So I started thinking about how to create a system. This was several years ago, and I hope the company has improved password requirements since then. My system was easy to use, and it depended on references that none of my coworkers knew. When I used this system, I could put a post-it note on my desk with the clues. For example, dot one, oct, Fort Wayne. None of that would have made any sense to anybody but me. So today, for the first time, I will explain how to get from dot one, oct, Fort Wayne to my password, which was uppercase E, L, uppercase B, hash sign 1450. Dot one. Well, the initials of my older daughter, with the first and last letters capitalized, E-L-B. Those are no longer her initials, since she's married. The next clue was oct. Not October, but the hash sign, also known as the octothorpe. And Fort Wayne. Well, that's probably the most obscure reference because it refers to the frequency of the radio station I worked for when I was in Fort Wayne, 1450 WLYV. Using various family members, symbols, and references to frequencies, I had more than 40 possible passwords that I didn't have to remember. I can explain this system now because I haven't used it for several years and I will never use it again. Although I don't recommend a system like this if it can be avoided, it is a workable option for anyone who refuses or is not allowed to use a password manager. Some people create long passwords by concatenating a song title, like We All Live in a Yellow Submarine, with all of the words capitalized and no spaces. So that has upper and lower case letters, but no numbers. You can fix that by using a zero in place of the O in yellow and a 1 in place of the lowercase i in submarine. And it'd be even better if you replaced the word a with the at sign. But then, of course, you need to remember which letters you've chosen to replace with numbers and symbols. Seriously, if you can just use a password manager, use a password manager, and set up two-factor authentication for any site that allows it. Your data will thank you. If you find these podcasts useful, and I hope you do, might you consider a donation? There are no ads here, and support from listeners is the sole source of income. It's easy. Just visit the website and click the Donate button near the top of any page. You can make a one-time donation or schedule a repeating donation every month. I thank you. And so does the cat. In short circuits, Microsoft's web browsers haven't exactly been the most loved applications. Many people used Internet Explorer, even though it was a lousy browser, simply because they didn't know how to install another browser and set it as the default, or they didn't care, or Internet Explorer wasn't quite bad enough to spur action. At last, now, though, Microsoft may have gotten it right. Regardless of which browser you prefer, the browser on your computer uses one of four rendering engines, and that's about to shrink to three. Or, for Windows users, two. Google Chrome and most other browsers use Blink. Firefox uses Gecko, 
and Microsoft has used its own proprietary Trident rendering engine, followed by Edge HTML. Trident has been discontinued. Edge HTML is currently in maintenance-only mode because the new Edge browser uses Blink. So Windows computer users have a choice of a Blink browser or a Gecko browser. If you have an Apple computer and use Safari, it runs on the WebKit engine. So that's one mainline browser using WebKit, one mainline browser running Gecko, and everybody else using Blink. I've been trying the development channel for Microsoft Edge, and there are some features I like. Until now, I've used a Microsoft browser only when I needed to confirm that a website I'm working on operates properly under the Microsoft browser. Edge may change that. For the past few years, Firefox has been my preferred default browser. I like its ability to synchronize settings between computers. Consistency is helpful so that expected websites are available in bookmarks on all the computers I use. That feature is also available now in Edge. I synchronize everything but passwords and history. History because I rarely need to use it, and when I do, it's almost always to visit a site that I just recently left. Syncing that data wouldn't be useful. And I don't sync passwords because I don't allow browsers to store passwords, no matter how secure the developers say they are. Instead, I use a password manager, just as I mentioned earlier. The feature I find most compelling is the one that will doubtless be duplicated soon by other browsers, but Edge is the only browser that offers it currently. Vertical tabs. Why? Well, if you have only one or two tabs open simultaneously, prepare to be very unimpressed. But if you're like me and have 15 tabs open most of the time, or more, some people have 40 or 50, you might love this feature at first sight. Even with a wide screen and the browser running full screen or nearly full screen, the text on tabs is truncated when they run across the top of the screen. When the tabs are listed on the left side of the screen, the main part of the browser window may be a little bit smaller, but the title of each window is longer and easier to read. This feature is most useful on computers with wide screens. With wider and clearly identified tabs on the left side of the screen, instead of the narrow tabs at the top of the screen, I no longer accidentally close tabs by clicking the X instead of selecting the tab. Late last year, Microsoft introduced sleeping tabs. By default, any tab you haven't visited in two hours will go dormant. Users can adjust that time from 5 minutes to 12 hours, as well as specify that some tabs are exempt. This feature is intended to allow the browser to release memory consumed by tabs and to reduce the ongoing CPU load. When a tab is sleeping, the tab is dimmed. Selecting the tab wakes it up and refreshes the page. Memory load has been an ongoing problem with both Chrome and Firefox. I've been experimenting with the option to put the tabs to sleep when I haven't used them in five minutes. That is the most aggressive setting and the one most likely to cause problems. Microsoft says sleeping tabs use about 32% less memory and 37% less CPU on average. The potential disadvantage is that a sleeping tab won't display new information until you open it again. Facebook, for example, won't show new private messages until you wake up the tab. But that could be an advantage, too, because it can reduce distractions. If your computer is running the October 2020 version of Windows, that would be 20H2, 
The Alt-Tab key has a new feature for Edge, and actually also for Chrome. To use it, open Settings, System, Multitasking, and choose one of the Alt-Tab functions that mentions Edge. Now when you press Alt-Tab, you'll see a display of all open applications and three, five, or all of the tabs that are open in your browser. Because browsers, with only one or two exceptions, are free, I like to test drive new versions of several browsers. I have switched between Firefox and Chrome several times as the default browser. As Edge matures, it's likely to join the mix. You have choices. Windows 10 computers will already have Edge installed, but there are three development channel options, Beta, Dev, and Canary. The most cautious approach would be just to give the installed version a try, but it won't have all of the latest features, including the one that I find compelling. The safest of the Edge Insider channels is Beta. It is updated every six weeks. Next is the Dev channel, which is what I use, because that version will have survived some internal quality tests. Updates arrive once a week. And for those who are really seriously interested in the latest features and are willing to put up with a few surprises, there is the Canary channel. It's updated every day. If you decide to try one of the preview versions of Edge, you'll be reminded when an updated version has been installed, and you'll see a list of the new features. Being part of the Edge Insider program opens a communications channel you can use to provide feedback about what you like and what you don't like, what works and what doesn't, and to describe features you'd like to see. But always remember, it is beta software. You may experience surprising features, and you will almost certainly experience crashes. The safer option would be to use Edge as it came with Windows 10. But where's the fun in missing the excitement of using unproven software? Chromebook users who have wished that Wacom would make a pen for use with their computers have had their wish granted, and the one-way by Wacom tablet that works with Windows and Mac OS computers has now been upgraded to also work with Chromebooks. The One by Wacom Pen Tablet is the first Wacom device to be fully compatible with Chromebooks, and Wacom is building a library of content for educators in a new teacher's support network. The tablet is available in two sizes, 8 inches by 6 and 11 inches by 7. It is a basic device that lacks features found in Wacom's more expensive tablets. No express keys are included on the tablet, and it is not enabled for multi-touch. To use the tablet, Chromebook computer users must be running Chrome OS 87 or later and kernel 4.4 or higher. It works with any version of Windows from Windows 7 on and with Mac OS version 10.10 .10 and later. The small tablet is priced at $60, the medium sells for $175. A stylus is better than a mouse for drawing and writing. Because the One by Wacom doesn't have the ability to display what's on the screen as the much more expensive Wacom One, Cintiq, and Cintiq Pro models do, the user needs to master the process of looking at the screen while drawing on the tablet. This is not as difficult to do as you might think. Note that Wacom has created no small amount of confusion by naming two very different tablets with virtually the same name. The One by Wacom is an inexpensive tablet with limited functionality and no display. 
The Wacom One is an entry-level tablet with a display and significantly advanced features. The Wacom One is about the same size as the medium won by Wacom, but it is not compatible with Chromebooks and it costs $400. Why Wacom chose to give two very dissimilar tablets such similar names is a mystery. The pen with the one by Wacom doesn't need a battery, and the tablet is powered via the USB port on the computer. Some users will need an adapter to convert the small USB connector to a USB-C connector. You won't need a pen of any sort to connect with spare parts. Use your keyboard and zip over to the TechBiter Worldwide website. This week, you'll find these articles. If you want to be a better photographer, take more pictures. It's easy advice to give, a bit more difficult to follow. It does work, though. Does your Windows computer sometimes switch from a 5 GHz network to a slower 2.4 GHz connection? If so, there's an easy solution. And 20 years ago, we were all anxiously awaiting Windows XP. It would prove to be the most significant advance for Windows since Windows 95. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.